Well, good morning. It's good to be here. Um, one reason it's good to be here is I get to put on big boy clothes. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, just living in your uh, sweats or whatever all the time. So uh, we're in a series right now um, called Living Intention. And we're trying to understand how we live with each other in families and in churches and in communities when we don't all agree on, well, everything, anything. And we're trying to move ourselves our, as a group, our, move our church towards a spiritually mature way of looking at tension. So we have a slide that we've used in, in the other, uh, other times that we've taught this. Spiritual mature living intention looks like this. It looks like this. It looks like this. Living peacefully with others who think and live and believe differently from us. Loving them as Jesus loved. Now, I'm not even going to think about all the rest of it. The first two or three words are super hard. Living peacefully with. See, I think we're good at living away from peacefully or living unpeacefully with but we're not too good always at living peacefully with. So that's our definition of living intention in a spiritual, mature way. So this series will continue. Uh, last week, uh, Alice was talking from, directly from the book of James, and it was amazing. If you want to go check that out. This week, I will be talking about why it's so hard for us to allow our brothers and sisters, both literal and metaphor, our brothers and sisters, why is it so hard for us to allow them to hold different truths than us? Why is that hard? I'm going to start over here in this other place like I usually do. Why do we want to own the ocean? That's my question for you. Why is the most expensive houses in the world always on oceanfront or on lakefront or in the mountains? Why is it that we think that if we could just own a piece of that, that everything would be great? Why? Because, because uh, when you could also go there, you could travel there and, and go to almost the same exact uh, place and for free see the same exact view. But instead, we think we need to build multi-million dollar houses sitting on the ocean property. Or why do you want to own a painting? When you could go see it somewhere else. Oh, why do you want to own anything that's beautiful? For me, it's this. I want to own a cabin in the woods. I just, I just really want to own the woods. A little, my little piece of the woods. Well, part of the reason we want to own them is because they're beautiful. And we're attracted to that beauty. And we get inspired by it. And, and we are filled with awe by it. So that, that inspires us, but there's this thing in humanity that when we do get inspired like that, when we do get filled with awe, we just want to possess it. We want to control it. We want, we want to possess things that attract us. Because we think that then we'll always be able to have that feeling of awe, that feeling of inspiration, that feeling of excitement. And to some extent that's true. I mean, to some extent, living in, in a place that's beautiful can continue to bring you awe and wonder. But other things happen too. As soon as you own it, as soon as you own your piece of the woods, your mindset towards it changes. It has to. 
Because now you also feel responsible for it. In addition to the awe, you now feel responsibility. Now you feel like you need to guard it, protect it, define its boundaries, maintain it, insure it, repair it, paint it, dust it, mop it, rake it, mow it, and get a special light to show it. Right? You have all these things that you need to do suddenly or slowly sometimes over time. This pressure comes along with the joy. And, and it also, once you own it, it carries some fear. There's some fear that you're going to lose it or fear that it's going to depreciate. And the other thing that happens that may be more subtle that you might not have thought of is in your mind, people's opinion of it becomes their opinion of you. If it's a mess, then you are a messy person. If it's in disrepair, then you are a lazy person. If it isn't as good or as fancy or as nice as somebody else's, then you're an underachiever. So what do we do? We order it. We put it in rows. We make it neat and tidy, which is how we get from the woods to here. An English garden, a formal garden. This is what we do. This is humanity. We start with the woods, wild and untamed, and we end up there because we just feel the need to control it and put it in rows and make it tidy because we feel the pressure of people judging us for it not being that way. I live kind of near the woods and there's trees on my property and it's such a funny thing that I can walk outside my house and see a limb that has fallen from the night before and get all these feelings of guilt and pressure about what the neighbors might think and disappointment that this thing is now a job that I have to do. And I can walk past that tree limb into the woods and now there's limbs everywhere. There's trees that are, fall, that are laying on the ground. They're rotting, right? There's worms and bugs and I am in awe of its beauty. What is that? What is that? How can these things be so different from each other? The untamed woods that's rotting and falling down and I'm in awe of its beauty. And my yard with one stick on it, and I can't handle it. All right, I've got this idea started in your head, right? Why do you want to own the woods, or the, why do you want to own the ocean? And what happens to your mindset once you do? So I just want you to hold that thing there, and we're going to go somewhere else for a second. That's going to come back. When I was in my 20s, I knew everything. I knew everything. Right? I was super confident in my theology. I knew all the right answers. And uh, so I, I taught adult Sunday school. I started to lead some of the college small groups. I started my own consulting company. So I guess with those three examples, it also says that I wanted to tell everyone what the right answer was, right? I didn't just know it. I needed to tell people what the answers were. In fact, my wife's grandfather would say with this chuckle, so, John Deere needs you to tell them what to do, huh? And, he, and, I, and I think he was impressed, but I also think I now see the absurdity in what he was seeing. Okay, so I'm this kid who knows everything. And I have two brothers and a sister. And my two brothers and sister are actually smarter than me. Not to say I'm smart. I'm, they're, they're smart. Okay, you got it. They had different answers to life's questions than I did, right? They, they behaved differently. They believed differently. 
And so, by the transitive property, which you know because you memorized it in junior high school, right? By the transitive property, if what I believe is right and what they believe is not what I believe, then what they believe is not right. That's math. I mean, that's just fact, right? If they don't believe the same as I believe and I'm believing right, then they're wrong. So this is me. This is Kurt, 20-year-old Kurt. One day, I'm on the phone with my dad, wise dad, and he taught me things um, often through these little phone calls. So on this particular phone call, some 30 years later, and I still remember it very vividly, he told me that maybe I should check out, maybe, Romans chapter 14. He, in it, he said that Paul says that one person can believe and do one thing, and another person can do and believe a different thing, and both of them could be acting righteously. <laughs> no. I, I might have scoffed out loud. I might have made that sound that I just made. I don't remember what I did. But I do know that I thought he wasn't right. But my dad, also super smart, and has studied his Bible way more than I had at that point, so I always had to at least listen and ponder what he had to say. So just for some context, if you don't know, Romans is this letter that a guy named Paul writes to the church in Rome, right? And Paul wrote lots of letters to lots of churches, but this particular one to Rome, we think of it sort of as the queen or the jewel or the top dog letter that he wrote. And one of the reasons is because he hadn't been there yet. So in these other letters, you always feel like you're just sort of inserted into the middle of a conversation and you don't know what had happened before because Paul had been there. But in Rome, he hadn't been there. So in Romans, he just sort of lays things out as if he's just laying them out from scratch. And so it becomes one of our sort of uh, primary or main uh, texts of Paul. So within this particular section that is chapter 14, of course he didn't chapter it that way, but he's talking about this problem that was happening at the time all over the Christian world. See, some of the early converts to this Jesus following, lots of the early converts to this Jesus following were Jewish. Right? They grew up Jewish. They learned Jewish law. They, they, they celebrated Jewish celebrations. But the other big part of people who were becoming Jesus followers were not. They didn't grow up that way. They didn't know that. And they had very, very different mindsets about what God wanted from them. And in this particular chapter, this chapter 14, Paul's dealing with two things. He's dealing with dietary laws, um, whether or not you should eat meat, because there was this risk that the meat that you bought from the marketplace might have been sacrificed to an idol the day before because the butcher was, was, uh, was a person who was um, a religious practicer of this other god. So he, so he sacrifices the meat to an idol, then he brings it to the market, and then you buy it, and then you eat something sacrificed to an idol, and then you're a bad person, right? That's, that's one thing he's dealing with. And the other thing he's dealing with is holy days, whether you should celebrate these Jewish holidays that were laid out in the Old Testament. Now, you guys, this is no minor thing. Like today we think of this, when we read this, we're like, oh yeah, he's talking about eating meat and he's talking about holidays, kind of side issues, kind of little things. These are not little things to the Jewish people. These are fundamental. In fact, if you go back and read Exodus and Leviticus, you're going to find more laws about dietary practices and holy days than almost anything else. 
I mean, maybe idolatry would rank higher. I haven't actually counted. But you know, you just get the sense that dietary laws and holy days are two of the more important things. Two of the things that separate Jews from everybody else. It's their sort of symbol of who they were. So these are, you got to get it in your head. These are important things. All right, so this is something I already kind of know as my dad's leading me in there. But my dad says, all right, we're going to look at a few specific things. So here we go. Romans 14, chapter 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand and fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So you, gotta, you don't know my dad, but you got to hear my dad talking to me then. So, Kurt, he loved, this is his teaching style. He would ask you a question that you could not squirm out of. Like, you knew the answer. You knew where he was pushing you, and you still couldn't get out of it. So, Kurt, my dad would say, if you serve God, who tells you how to do it? Well, God does. The Spirit does. I listen to him. I pray, and I know. And so if they serve God, who tells them how to do it? Yep, same. So, is a master, and maybe for our time we should change those words, your boss, is a boss able to tell one person who works for them to do one thing, and a boss able to tell another person who works for them to do another thing? Is that possible? Is that, is that okay? Of course it is, Dad. <laughs> okay, then. Do you think you're the one, actually, who should get in between the boss telling them what to do and them doing it? You think you should insert yourself in that? Whoa, hi. No. No. See, Kurt, this verse says that you're each a servant. You're each a worker working for the same God, reporting to God, and that you shouldn't be judging his orders to them. You should be thinking about your orders. And then for good measure, Paul adds this, just because you're thinking to yourself, well, yeah, they can do that if they want, but they're going to fall. They're going to they're be going in the wrong direction. Paul adds, no, they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Huh. What do we do with that, right? Okay, we're going to move on. That's what we do with it. Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special should do so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. So, Kurt, do you think your brothers and sisters love God? Yeah. Do you think that they have thought about these issues, that they're smart people, and that they actually believe what they believe. Yeah. Do you think they honor God and give thanks to God with their lives? Yeah. Okay, so this verse is saying that honoring God and giving thanks to God is actually the important part of the deal. That the eating and the holy days weren't the important part. Even though Exodus and Leviticus makes them seem that way, Exodus and Leviticus were getting at honoring God. And the prophets and Jesus come along and say very similar things. Honoring God, that was the thing. Okay, we're going to keep moving. Romans chapter 14, verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? 
Or why do you treat them with contempt? Kurt, I don't think we need a lot of questions there. (laughs) Why do you do it? And finally, Romans 14, chapter 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. So this is Paul, this is not my dad, this is Paul turning the thing upside down, right? He's taking his argument and he's looking at it from the other way and he says, besides, if that person who really believes what they're doing started doing the things that you really believe are right but they don't believe them, then they're not doing right because they're not honoring God. So, Kurt, do you think that if they did it your way, they would actually believe that what they were doing was more right? No. No. Do you think that it would be better for them then, for their soul, for their relationship with God, if they did what you think is right or what they think is honoring to God? So in my mind, I was like, I got you there, Dad, because those two have to be the same, right? Doing right and honoring God have to be the same. Do they? In this entire chapter, Paul knows exactly what he thinks is the right answer. He, he, at, one point says, he at one point says, I am fully convinced, knowing from the Spirit of God the right answer, and yet... If you do it and you don't believe it, it's not right. If their eating is not from faith, it's sinful. So it's better for them not to do it. I was kind of disturbed by this conversation 30 years ago, enough that I still remember it. I still remember it, and I still wrestle with it, kind of. It pushed me off balance. It made me think. It challenged me to adjust which is exactly what living in good tension is supposed to be doing, right? We're supposed to be helping people think and adjust. So I want to I pause and acknowledge your feelings that were my feelings at that time. Maybe. Maybe if you're, if you're here, there's a voice inside your head, or if you're at home, you, it's not been inside your head, you've been yelling it at the TV. Are you trying to say then that I can do anything I want as long as I feel like God is telling me to do that and as long as it's honoring God? Are you telling me that like if I think God tells me I should kill my brother, then it would be wrong for me not to do that? Well, it shouldn't take me this long to answer that question, should it? Well, no, I'm not saying that. Although, with that exact scenario, I think maybe you should ask yourself, do you believe that Abraham was righteous when he was about to kill his son because he thought God had told him to? Do you believe that was credited to him as righteousness, as the New Testament later said? I mean, he was about to do something wrong, dead wrong. It was wrong. And, and God saved him from that. But he thought that's where he was, what he was supposed to do, and later it was credited to him as righteousness. So I think the answer is not quite as easy as you think it is. But still, but still, I am not saying that anything you do, you can, you can do if you thought God was telling you to do it. Because I think we often get it wrong. I think when we're on our own and by ourselves, sometimes our mind takes us to a place where we think God's telling us something that he's not. 
In fact, Paul, in a different letter, in the, in the letter to the Corinthians, he has to deal with this exact issue of people taking his lessons too far. He was with the Corinthian church, and he taught them his beliefs. And then he leaves, and then they kind of take it a little too far. And so at one, in one point, he has to say, hey, you guys, I heard that there's a person in your midst who's committing incest, and you guys are letting it happen because of freedom, because of this principle. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. That's wrong. You should be putting a stop to that. But in that same exact example, you've got to at least think through the idea that how did they get there? How did the Corinthian church get there? Because they listened to Paul and they thought about what he was saying. And then they took it a bit too far, but he's on the right road. Right? So I think you might need to also acknowledge that you might not be quite as right all the time as you think you are. And your brother and sister might not be quite as wrong all the time as you think they are. And I think maybe we should then look at the end of this chapter where Paul gives us this principle at the end in verse 19 and 20. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Let us make every effort to lead to peace and to mutual edification. So do you think killing your brother is leading to peace and mutual edification? I'm pretty sure it's not mutual edification for sure. So this is one of the things we should be running through our head. Are we leading to peace and to mutual edification? And then this is an amazing little phrase at the end. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And what he's saying is, don't destroy your brother because of what you believe about eating. Food is not as important as your brother. That is a powerful verse. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All right. Now I'm going to attempt to join the two threads. Remember what we started with? Why do you want to own the ocean? And what happens when you do? So, why are you so prone? As a human, why are you so prone to judge and condemn and destroy your brother or your sister? And I think one of the reasons, among others, one of the reasons is because you have decided, I have decided to own the truth. We're attracted to the truth. We're attracted to its beauty. We're inspired by it, by its purity. And we want to do what's right. And, and in some way, we have decided to take ownership of it. We have signed the deed for it. And once we do that, then we start to feel the need to guard it and protect it and define its boundaries and to maintain it and to ensure it and to repair it and to paint it and dust it and rake it and mop it and mow it and get a special light to show it. Right? We decide that it's up to us to protect it. We start living, having this fear that something is going to happen that's going to make it go away. It is going to be destroyed on our watch. We are going to lose it. And we start to think that people's opinion about it, the law, the truth, is their opinion about us. If my brother or sister thinks differently or thinks that what the, this part of the tr law or the truth isn't the same as me, then what they're really saying, if they're not saying it is, you're dumb, you're stupid, you're not right. 
We've, we've, we've moved this assignment of their opinion about that to their opinion about us. And so because of all those things, we tidy it up. We put it in rows. We make it neat and tidy. We establish its boundaries. And we turn it into an English garden. It is very knowable. It is very straight. It is very symmetrical. We can't accept one branch being out of place. And we become, we become desperate to grab and protect and defend it. When really the truth has asked us to honor it and to give thanks for it and to seek mutual peace and edification. So from a 30-year-old teaching from my dad, actually he wouldn't have called it that, from a 30-year-old phone call from my dad, I think there's a couple of things you can learn. First of all, I have three questions that you could ask yourself. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, they rise and fall and they will rise. They will stand because the Lord is able to make them stand. Number two, why then, you then, why do you judge your brother and sister? Why are you doing it? Just be thoughtful. And then even more, why do you hold them with, with contempt? Why do you treat them with contempt? Three questions to ask yourself. Now the next one is three statements from Paul that you might use to, with, when you're asking these questions. One thing Paul says, if, anything, if anyone regards something as unclean, then for them it is unclean. So there actually is differences in, in how we believe and think and do, and there actually can lead us to do different kinds of righteousness. So don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Don't destroy your brother because of this. And finally, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, how you follow the law, how you think and believe, if, if your brother or sister is starting to feel like you are judging them and not the law, then you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. So I'm going to just challenge you again. Do what leads to mutual peace, mutual edification. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, strong words from Paul here, but also words that kind of are foreign to our minds. This isn't how we think. But there's this idea that we're trying to establish of what it means to live in tension, what it means to, to have constructive tension, to be able to have a context in which we can help each other through mutual edification without destroying each other. I pray now that you just really help Help us, because these are complicated, confusing questions. Help us understand and evaluate ourselves. Help us to live in tension, but in peace. In Jesus' name.